Welcome to the April 2012 edition of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm well, and you? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, good. Well, and, and how about you, our three listeners? How are you doing? Hey, I ran into one of our listeners when I was in San Diego. Did you? Yeah. Somebody was... Uh, um, uh, oh, I can't even remember who it was. I was at a men's retreat, and it was somebody from the church where Sean and I had both interned, and they were like, I know that name. And it was somebody that I hadn't <laughs> met before, where they were like, oh, are you an Ordinary Means podcaster? No, I'm just kidding. I've That's gotten that right. before. But... Um, but yeah, it was one of our three listeners. Actually, two of them were at the same table. It was kind of funny. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> you know, we might start having to say we have four listeners. We may. We may. <laughs> well, hey, you were just uh, – this one of the, the our topic today. You were just out in San Diego uh, talking with folks about a new project you have going on. Yes. Um, strugglingchurches.com. But it's just not up yet. It, today. it doesn't exist yet. Don't go there yet. But we'll mention it in the future. Uh, but this is so we're going to talk about today revitalization. Okay, so that's that's the technical that term. Like precept of what, Sean? Yeah, precept of what? Uh, with, <laughs> it was like I, I've told the story before of the first conversation I ever had as a as a high school youth group leader. First question a youth ever asked me was, "Are you um, are you supra or ultralapsarian?" <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually the wrong question, but. Yes, so I thought I thought that was funny. So, um, so revitalization—it's the technical term. You hear this, you kick, you hear people kicking around these R words, you know, revitalization, reformation. Um, well, and different different denominations, different contexts use different words too. There's a the Christian Missionary Alliance calls it redevelopment. Um, in the X twenty nine world, you'll hear uh, replant. Um, okay. So, uh, people talking about similar space of ideas. So the the question today before us is is what is it, mm-hmm. and I don't. Perhaps we'll get here today. You know, when 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 are you a struggling church? When are you? When is a church in need of revitalization? Now, could I get? Could I give? Because I know you're going to talk most of this time. No, no. Can I ahead. give my? I um, can I give my um, definition of when a church needs to be revitalized? Absolutely. Okay. After it's planted. <laughs> like if it's planted, hey, 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 if, hey if one of the two of us has revitalized the church that was just after it was planted, so maybe that's what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, if you start on a Sunday, your church will need revitalization on Monday. And my, now, why is it? Why is that, Sean? Well, you look at the letters in in the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Every church, save one, and that doesn't mean that one church doesn't have any problems. But when you put you, I don't know where God got this idea that I'm going to create the church. I'm going to put a bunch of sinners together, <laughs> and and they're going to have this beautiful, godly organization that's going to practice the ordinary means and always deliver godly sermons, always administer the sacraments rightly, um, always practice church discipline. You know, you know what the you know what the church is like. It's like putting cats in a bag. Right? I mean, somebody is going to get scratched. <laughs> the visual there is just wonderful. So so I, I really believe, and I think this is why uh, a ministry what, like what you're looking at is 
so important is because churches need to be revitalized from day one. That the process of growth, you know, think about it, what's the process of Christian growth? But our personal regeneration mm-hmm. from day one. Well, and that we look at conversion not as something that's only at the beginning. This is one of the good things that we learned in seminary is that the, at least the old reformers didn't think that conversion was something that stopped when you were converted mm-hmm. the first time. But that it was that sanctification, if you read some of the old literature, they'll talk about conversion and you're like, oh, this person's not a Christian yet. And you're like, no, no. The way that they looked at that was that conversion was daily. That was their way of talking about that we're, we're, uh, that our ongoing sanctification is to be converted to the gospel again today. Right? It's similar to what we, this is a term I've been using lately, is trying to apply the gospel to sanctification is mm-hmm. using the term or the question, what will you believe God for today? Because we mm-hmm. talk about how I, I believed in Jesus, you know, in October of 1986. But, but that process of applying that gospel means, you know, because you didn't believe in Jesus and suddenly you were perfect. Okay, you, you still were spending your money in ways that were selfish. And mm-hmm. so somewhere along the line, God came down and met with you and said, I need you to believe me for the money. Mm. And, and you were still hitting your wife. <laughs> and, you know, and God comes down and says, I need you. Okay, now, you know, you've been a Christian six months. I need you to believe me that I can take care of your marriage and you don't have to take control in that and abuse your wife. Mm. Okay, so mm. it's it's that it's that process. Yeah, absolutely. When I think that we get distracted so easily, I mean, all you have to do is take the distraction that we feel in the Christian life. Um, my son, one of my sons, has been is in Awana, and he's been memorizing um, a passage um, from First Peter uh, that talks about how. We weren't redeemed with silver or gold, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. But what we were redeemed from is what's really caught my attention. Um, We were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. And there's something very, very deep and profound there that's being said by Peter. A good, faithful Jew. Right? Oh, yeah. And this is the guy... He was a good, faithful Jew. Jew. This is the guy who needed the vision of yeah. the animals. Yeah. And yeah. and but he could look back on it and say that apart from Christ and apart from the grace of God and apart from with the gospel and understanding it, it's the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. Him and those that he's writing to who are struggling under persecution and things like that. Um, and I think that it's it's that just like we have to come back personally to the gospel each day in repentance and faith. Um, to look to Christ for our identity, to look to Christ uh, for our righteousness, to look to Christ for our adoption and for our significance and meeting and security and fulfillment, just like we have to do that as individuals. If the individuals in a church aren't doing that, then you have the recipe for a church that's going to struggle and that's going to need to be revitalized because that is the source of struggles in churches is that the people that are there are not maturing under the gospel. Mm. So go back and look at the six 
lessons that we did on is gospel-centered a good thing and how we nuanced that and said that ultimately it is as long as you don't fall into the pitfalls of it because it's actually the most crucial thing. It's the thing that's lost. If you look at Revelation in Ephesians 2, what does God say there? He says, you know, and I, I just preached on this on Sunday or taught on it Sunday evening in San Diego at the church where Sean and I both began as interns. And, um, oh, so many years ago. And um, <laughs> in the universe, a Wait, long I'm, I'm sorry, away, could you say that a little when, louder? <laughs> when, when Sean looked 16 instead of 18 and when Matt had brown hair. Um, <laughs> and... Um, you know, when you look at when you look at Revelation two one through seven and the church at Ephesus, they get things eighty percent right, and yet the twenty percent that they get wrong is so crucial. It's so wrong that Jesus is ready to close the church if they don't recover him as their first love. And what you get from that is that you to realize that that the problem is that um, it's not that they don't have a first love; it's that they have the wrong one. And and the first love in churches um, can be a lot of very good things. It could be a, a you could love a particular program, you could love a particular era of music, you could love a particular set of doctrine, um, you could love uh, a particular form of service, um, you could love a particular staff combination, you could love a particular building. Um, there's a lot of things that you can love that are good things used rightly. But if they become the thing, then Jesus looks at it, looks at the church and goes, mm, boy, that's really dangerous. If you don't turn from that and recover me as your first love, that that's the primary thing that your church is about, is about loving me. And of course, the only way that people can love Jesus, First John tells us, right, is that we love because he first loved us. How do we know that he loved us? Well, we have this daily understanding and appreciation that's growing of the gospel. That's the only way. That's the word of love. It's the word of grace. And so that's that's how this interleaves with what we've done before in the podcast, is that unless a church can return to its first love, Jesus says, um, you know, we, we joke, you know, Elvis has left the building. But the scary thing about churches, eight or nine churches a day close in America – and the reason that they close is Jesus, is that left, Jesus the left the building. Because that, the people there were about something other than primarily seeing their lives as a return of love for love, to love God and love neighbor in response to the love that had been shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit as they understood and embraced the gospel daily. So I'm pulling a lot of scriptures together there. Sorry, and I'm not giving you the addresses and all that kind of stuff. But hopefully you've got enough of a grasp of the scriptures to see that that's the combination of thoughts that come to you in the New Testament. And when Jesus comes to the church at Ephesus and puts it on the bottom line like that, and they had a lot going for them. But their primary thing was not love Jesus. Love God, love neighbor. Real simple. But it wasn't what was the underlying ethos of the church. He says, that, sorry, 80% is not going to do it because you're missing the most important thing. Sorry, you you know, got me preaching there. Sorry no, that. no, no, that's good. Well, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, you're tying it into our series on the gospel. But I mean, I think this goes back even f – this topic goes back even further to really – what it was that got us started with this podcast in in the first place, uh, which is which is obviously 
What's that? How many years have we been doing the podcast? It's. I think we're up to five. Oh, I think we're more than that. You think it's been more than five? I think so. Anyways, go ahead. Two thousand. I'll, I'll find out how long it's been. You. You. Okay. You look it up. Look it up on the blog. Okay. So this. This is what I'm thinking. Going back even further. Obviously, it's ordinary means. The ordinary means podcast. It's. It's our love for Christ. Is our connection to Christ comes through. His speaking to us, preaching, our speaking to him, prayer, um, our, our receiving his grace through the sacraments, and our following him through, through church discipline. Um, all those things, the ordinary means of grace. Well, why is th- this podcast so radical? Why is this so different than what the church is doing? The reason this podcast is so radical is because most churches— um, are are following every fad in the book, and, and mm. I think this is you know we we're saying struggling churches need to do something. Okay, mm. the normal pattern for struggling churches is is this: oh, we're struggling. What should we do? And we immediately we go to the websites, we go to the the book catalogs, mm. uh, we mm-hmm. go to the conferences. And we try to find what's the what's the thing that's working for churches these days. We become very pragmatic, mm. and we go and we find the thing that's working, and we think that's going to revitalize us. But here's the problem: it might have worked for Rick Warren, <laughs> uh, but it's probably not going to work in your context. And so, what's going to end up happening is you're you're going to try this great thing to revitalize your church. And six months from now, when the great thing didn't work, you're going to be sadder, hopefully wiser, (laughs) but you'll definitely be sadder, and you will be, and possibly because you've trusted to a program. That's very important, what Sean just said. Go ahead. Because you've trusted to a program, you may be in a worse place six months later. Mm. farther from mm. revitalization, mm. farther mm-hmm. from your first love. So, you know, I mean, that's what we're about with this podcast, The Ordinary Means of Grace, calling you back to, to how God works in the church. And, and I think you're going you're gonna to say this, revitalization is about coming back to God and saying, God, what am I supposed to be doing here? So uh, ultimately, if if revitalization is bringing a congregation back to vital spiritual life, uh, which it is, that's what that's what revitalization is. It's bringing a congregation back to vital spiritual life. Where do we find vital spiritual life? We find it in the gospel. Where do we hear the gospel? We hear the gospel through the preaching of the word on Sundays. We hear the gospel. We see the gospel through the sacraments. We understand the gospel as we pray, both publicly and privately. As we read the scriptures, we hear the scriptures read out loud and preached on Sundays as we read them privately. Um, as we experience and, and as we pray, both publicly and worship and privately. We don't do the sacraments privately, but that's you have to go to a different podcast to hear that. Um, but um, the, the place that God brings us to spiritual renewal is, is the place is to be reacquainted with the gospel. 
And a primary way that he wants to reacquaint us with the gospel is through the gospel-centered preaching of his word and through the experience of his sacraments and through prayer. There's nothing more mystical about revitalization than that. Yes, there is a ton to learn. There's a huge body of, not a huge body of literature. I wish there was. There's a small body of literature to master in terms of revitalization. It's what I do, if you haven't picked that up already. But, um, but in the essence of it is if I have, let me just take a typical example of revitalization. If I have an older person in the congregation who remembers the heyday of the church and they perceive that the heyday of the church was because you had this youth pastor mm-hmm. and they believe that the best days of the church would come back if we just had a youth pastor, how do you address that? Well, you have to come and you have to say, Boy, wasn't that a great era in the church? You don't, want to, you don't want to dog what God did. It certainly was probably a great time. The youth, God, God probably used that youth pastor in the lives of kids and helping them understand the gospel and apply it to their lives. So you don't want to dog that and say that it was bad. But what you do is you want to dive underneath it. And you would dive underneath it and say, what was it about that ministry that was great? It wasn't just the guy, was it? No, it was the gospel that the guy preached. It was that those kids understood the gospel. And yeah, maybe we don't have a youth pastor right now. But do you realize that that's why we're doing the catechism with our kids? That's why we use our denominational curriculum to teach our kids the catechism so that they can really go deep in understanding and applying the gospel to their lives. That the same thing that you wanted to see happen, that you saw happen to that youth pastor, that is what we're trying to do now which is to get the kids in touch with the gospel is the thing that would be their dominant life framework. And that's a, just one example. Um, but that's, that's a very, it's a very nuanced thing at times to do revitalization, but because of the people relationships and the navigating those, but at the heart of it, it's actually extraordinarily simple. You're trying to be an agent in God's hands of bringing people back to their first love. And when they come back to their first love, they're going to be interested in what their first love is interested in because their first love is interested in the great commission. Their first love is interested in by the power of the Holy spirit that these people become missionaries in their neighborhood and the gospel that has become so important to them. They now speak to others. When the, and now Matt, that happens, yeah, go ahead, finish your thought. And I'm going to no, add to when, that. Yeah, yeah. But when that happens, now you have a congregation, Sean put it early on in the podcast, that as soon as you get through the plant phase, that you need to go revitalization. What happens to a church in the plant phase? They haven't lost sight yet that the reason that we are here, certainly to support one another in the body. We have all these one another commands, right? Certainly we're here to be a branch of the Church of Christ in this place. Why? Not just to support each other which is what most churches in the revitalization phase need. But we're here for people that aren't here yet. We're here because there's lots of pagans out there that need to hear the gospel. And they need to hear it from us, my neighbors, the people that I know in the sports that my kids are in, the people in the store, the people that I work with. People in the plant phase of a church haven't lost sight of that yet. People beyond the plant phase frequently have. And they've misunderstood what church, why church exists, why today exists which is that there's people yet to be reached with the gospel. So revitalization at the core of it is not, it's, it's simple, but it is 
absurdly not simplistic. It's very nuanced in terms of the, the kind of work that the leader has to do to see this individual person or this group of people in the church come to shed what they think is most important and return to their true first love as what's most important. So simple but not simplistic at all. One of the things, I, I think, going to something that you just said uh, and then tying it to something we said earlier, mm-hmm. uh, evangelism. And, and that's mm-hmm. perhaps that would be somebody coming to this podcast for the first time might ask, you know, oh, the ordinary means, yeah, but what about missiology? <laughs> you know, what, what, about, what about all that? And what we would say is that that is all outflow uh, of a proper understanding of the gospel. Now, yeah. what often happens is a pastor will look at his church and they'll say, we don't evangelize. And his solution is, um, okay, so we're going to teach them this method. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to go to the, you know, we're going to do this seminar in evangelism. But mm-hmm. here's, here's... Which might not be bad. Which might not be bad. But here's the problem. If your people are under-equipped, absolutely. Okay. But here's the problem. If Christ is not the first love, <laughs> why do I need to evangelize? Right. And do I even feel like it? And so you can, <laughs> you can pound, you can use, uh, pastors will turn to guilt manipulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will turn to, to programs that give members these, you know, seven, 10, 12 steps that if you just do these things, you are quote unquote evangelizing, mm-hmm. and and actually, and you can actually teach non Christians to evangelize doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the while, <laughs> forgetting the first love. Absolutely, and and the danger of that here's the danger that I see is that established churches um, typically try to do evangelisms through programs. They'll throw events. They'll invite people to certain things. And, and there are eras in the church where that was an effective means of evangelism um, in that the community that was surrounding the church had a sense of that the church was a respectable part of the community. They were an important part of the community. If the church threw an event, that's something that mentally as a parent, say it was a, an Easter egg roll. We're coming up on Easter this the week that we're recording. And... Um, you know, that I, I think the church is a place that is safe and good for my kid. I might not go there, but there's some respectability in my heart for the church. And so I'll kind of go to an event and, oh, these do seem like interesting people. Maybe we will get back to church and we'll visit it. And that that kind of dynamic occasionally occurs where I minister in Seattle. It occurred just a couple of weeks ago um, to us in meeting a couple in the community. But the vast, 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 vast majority of people in Seattle believe that our church is a stain on the neighborhood, and it's the last place that they would send their kid to. And I realize that that sounds strange to more churched areas of the country. If you're listening in a more churched area, that sounds like something really scandalous. No, it sounds like something really first century. And that's really where Seattle is, is we're just back. We're back to the paganism of the first century here. Matt, and so what that Matt, means? I'm, I'm I'm in Washington County, a a conservative bastion, ver, a bastion. Yes, ver, well yeah. ch- well churched, but do yes. you, do you know how many 
what percentage of people attend church in Washington County on a Sunday morning? This is Washington County, Pennsylvania, by Pennsylvania. the way. South and east of Pittsburgh. Yes. Uh, south and west of Pittsburgh, sorry. Yes. Uh, you ready? What percentage of people in Washington County uh, attend church, Sean? 10%. No. Yep. You're kidding me. Nope. You're approaching our numbers. Yeah. That's amazing. Huh. But I see, I think it's I think years. it's for different reasons. I think in in your numbers, the ninety percent have no re- use for church. Mm-hmm. I think in our numbers, the ninety percent feel overchurched, and so therefore feel that they don't have to be in church. Interesting. You have a lot of dechurched. I have a, a fair yeah. amount of unchurched. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I think that so the I'll finish the point we were on a little bit earlier was. Um, if the people around the church have no use for the programs that you're trying to throw, then they're really sort of pointless. They're from a bygone era in the sense of not when they had their origin, but the mindset that was behind them assumed that the people surrounding the church in the neighborhood had a Christian mindset, had a respectability for the church, and the issue was you were just sort of trying to attract them to your church. Um. We don't have that problem in Seattle. The people around us really have no regard for the church at all. And so trying to throw, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something carefully, but, but precisely, throwing an impersonal program at people is not the New Testament model. The New Testament model was a personal relationship with people. So Paul went house to house with the gospel. You're not inviting them. You're not inviting them to church. You're inviting them to Christ. Now Paul did do stuff in public, right? Yeah. In Ephesus, he yeah. taught in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. But notice that wasn't a church building. It was a common space. It, the equivalent of that is a, a book club at Barnes and Noble, or a lecture series in a civic auditorium. It wasn't come to us, it will go to you, to a common space where ideas are transacted, where ideas are exchanged. It's the difference that uh, associate pastor used to have at our church, used to put this really, really well. And he would say the dynamic in Israel was come and see. The dynamic this side of Pentecost is go and tell. And the programmatic mindset is a come and see. Hmm. To make friends with your neighbors and spend significant time with them, praying that God will give you the opportunity, the boldness, the open door. I'm thinking all the what Paul asks for a prayer for himself. The words, the boldness, the opportunity, the open door to proclaim the gospel to your neighbor. That's the personal ministry that marked the first century. And it's the personal ministry that needs to mark a revitalization church. This is this is the perfect time for saying this because this this is I think what you're saying is if your church is struggling the answer is not going and finding a ministry that will make your church more sellable. Yes. The answer is actually to work within the church. The answer isn't outside the church. The answer is within mm-hmm. the church. Mhm to return to that first love, to that personal relationship. And that actually, that return might make your church less sellable. 
it, it might not. In some ways. In some ways. Right. Um, it might not be as, as popular. You might kick out a program that... that, that some that people like. Some people like. Yeah. Um, in order to get back to making Christ the first thing. Now, uh, we're not I, saying I, you can't do programs. No, no. But I think that we do programs not with the hopes that unbelievers will come into them, but we do programs to equip the believers that we have so they can go out to unbelievers. Yes. So it, that everything has that, that Great Commission flavor to it. That our support of each other is not just to make us feel good, but that the church is a mash hospital where people get patched up with the gospel from one another so they can go back out into the fray. Um. <sighs> I think that one of the things over time that I've come to, as a way to express it, and I and learned this through um, some teaching that, that I've taken in over the years, um, is that it's not as though attraction is no longer an issue. It's that the locus of attraction has changed. So it used to be the way that we thought about church was that people would be attracted. They would find our church desirable. Sean called it sellable because we have a kicking youth group or we have an Awana program to train up kids or we have a great men's Bible study or uh, we have the best Easter egg roll in, uh, in the community. Okay. So those are that those were the ways or uh, let's bring it a little bit closer to home for probably all four of our listeners. Uh, which is that many times churches in our own denomination, Sean and I, if you're just new to the podcast, Sean and I were both ordained in the PCI, the Presbyterian Church in America, a medium-sized conservative Presbyterian body. And um, four years ago when I came to this church and I was looking for another call and I would talk to churches about why they thought they were there, the most common response that I got from churches, very soft sort of vision question that I'd ask search committee chairman, why is your church there? The most common response that I heard to that was, well, we're the reformed church in our neighborhood or we're the reformed mm -hmm. church in this part of the city. And many of our PCA have existed in what I'm going to call attractional mode and basically what they viewed as the attraction for people is where the Reformed Church, where, you're, where you'll hear good teaching. And um, neither of those things are bad, to be a Reformed Church or to have good teaching, or else my church would be bad. But, uh, and so would Sean's. But if your hope, if your trust, there's the crucial word, if your trust is in that, for why people are going to come to your church. If that is the attraction point, that's extraordinarily dangerous because it doesn't meet Jesus' standard. The attraction point uh, is meant to be the transformed lives of people. When you, look at, when you look at Thessalonians and you look at how Paul expresses the way that he and his companions were among the Thessalonians... How we weren't, we didn't just preach the word to you, but we, we lived our lives with you. They lived these gospel-shaped lives among unbelievers. They weren't scandalized by what, what the Pharisees thought should have been scandalous to Jesus. That he conducted himself among unbelievers in such a way that he could be accused. He wasn't, but he could be accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he ate and drank with people. And that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the early Christians got this. 
they got that in order for the gospel to make inroads in the lives of unbelievers, that the attraction point is the gospel-shaped lives of believers who spend time with them. Simple, but not simplistic. They will know we are Christians by our love. Right. So if unbelievers, what we're working towards in our church is we have these incredibly intentional um, community groups that we do. And what we've been trying to shape them towards over the last several years is to be a group of people that if an unbeliever bumped into us at a social gathering or if they came to one of our meetings where we, we open the scriptures together, if they bump into us, could they say that about us? Could they spend some time with us? Could they feel the love, to use a cultural phrase? And if they can, they're going to look at it and go, hmm. This doesn't make any sense why this group of people likes each other because the the culture would never put together a group of people like this. And that's good because the gospel can put together groups of people that should be together. That it can only be explained because the gospel is at work. God, by his grace, by the power of the spirit, through the word of the gospel, is transforming this group of people. And you have grandmas um, in taking care of young kids that aren't their own children, their own grandchildren. And you have different aged people, different status people, different ethnic people, different people from different ethnicities, people from different social classes, all in the same group loving each other. And the culture looks in and goes, what in the world happened there? Hmm. How did that happen? And now we have a reason to give the hope that lies within us. Because people can see that this is, this is the city of God within the city of man. And if unbelievers bump into a group of people like that and they can say, see how they love one another. Now, now that's, I'm all over that kind of attraction because what they're being attracted to is the aroma of Christ as they find him in these individual people and as they find him in this collection of people. Out of darkness, light. Mm -hmm. The light of Christ has broken through and that's, that's, that is what makes a church beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's pick up with this again next month. Well, there's tons more we can talk about practically. There is tons more we can talk about in terms of examples of uh, how the Lord does this because it doesn't look the same every time. Um, let's come back next month and do, and do that again. Uh, but until then, uh, thanks to all four, four and a half of you. Uh, okay, four and two-thirds. Um, okay. Thanks to all of you for listening, and uh, tell your friends about us, and uh, we pray, our, our Matt and I's prayers, that we would be of benefit uh, both to strong churches and to struggling churches. Uh, so the Lord bless you, richly bless you, as you pursue him through his ordinary means. Mm-hmm.